You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Thanks for being here. Uh, SF and SF, we are, as Rena said, a weekly reading program. We bring science fiction and fantasy authors to uh, to San Francisco and sponsor the and uh, Tachyon and Variety sponsors this reading, and it's a lot of fun. Uh, rather than go on and on about it, uh, we'll we're gonna our author's gonna read, and then we'll have a break, and then we'll have a Q and A and a discussion in which the audience will also take part. So. That's about all I have to say for my part, except I do want to remind people to turn on their cell phones in case something more interesting comes along. And, um, but in the meantime, I'd like to introduce, uh, we'll begin the reading. Uh, the first author uh, tried, he wanted to write science fiction and fantasy, but it wasn't working for him. So he did what most authors do, which is he got accepted to medical school. But then what happened to him there is what happens to most people in medical school. He got a three-book contract from Tor. <laughs> so he's in the process of juggling these things, and I'll, we'll deal with all that after the uh, intermission. But first, this is what he's really all about. So I'm looking forward to hearing uh, Blake Charlton read. Thank you, Terry. Is, is this thing on? Okay. Um, I also want to say this is the most impressive reading I've ever been to with these lights, and I feel like we're in the war room it's or something. very exciting. <laughs> There's no fighting in here. Uh, yeah, not in the war room, right? Um, so uh, it's wonderful to be here. I'm uh, very thrilled to be here. Some uh, quick news about myself so that I can, so the reading will come into context. Uh, I am severely dyslexic. I didn't learn to read till I was about 14, and the interesting way I learned to read was by sneaking science fiction and fantasy into special ed study hall, and I would surreptitiously read them under my desk. Uh, when I was supposed to be learning how to read, which was ironic, I thought. Um, and so, you know, uh, science fiction and fantasy really kind of saved me. I was kind of an angry, uh, obnoxious teenager. Uh, and then I became kind of a geeky, obnoxious teenager after finding uh, science fiction and fantasy and went off and really learned to love language and love uh, literature through that. Um, and then, you know, when the time came to try to write the great American dyslexic novel, um, clearly, the thing to do was to write a fantasy in which where the written word could be peeled off of the page and made physically real. So you could write something out and peel it off of the page and, and cast it into the air, and uh, it would do what you wrote it to do. I might make something float or, or, or throw a fireball at the bad guys. That would be a spell. But what if you wrote it down incorrectly and pulled it off of the page? What would happen then? Well, it would blow up. It would fall apart. Uh, that would be a misspell. So uh, enter our hero, who's very good at writing these, uh, very good at writing this uh, language, but anything, he has a disability in this world that's called cacography, and any text he touch automatically falls apart. Uh, so uh, very early in the, in the book, uh, someone, a very high, uh, someone high up in the academic chain is murdered by a misspell, and uh, 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 suspicion falls on various people, but uh, most particularly on um, most particularly on uh, our hero Nicodemus and his mentor. 
Um, you so, almost forgot his name, didn't you? I almost did. <laughs> I was, was going to say Blake, and that's... Um, and if you get the cover, you can tell that there's a lot of similarity between us because of his long black hair. Uh, anyway, so uh, what I wanted to do, I wanted to just read you two very quick pieces, and, and I wanted to kind of put them in the framework of one of these questions that are always asked of authors. It's usually the first question asked, and that question is, where do you get your ideas? And it's really unfortunate that that is the first question, because usually authors, we don't really have a good answer. We just say, oh, I don't know, they come to me. And whenever I'm in the audience and that question comes, I, I kind of feel so disappointed and kind of like, you know what, am I just a few colors short of a rainbow that the ideas aren't coming to me, and they're just coming to this other person? Um, so I, I don't think the ideas just come to you. I think you have to go out and look for them. And my theory about, actually, I'm going to read two quotations, two very brief quotations about uh, what to write about and like where, where, uh, where things come from. The first one comes from Graham Greene. Pain is easy to write. In pain, we're all happily individual. But what can one write about happiness? The sense of unhappiness is so much easier to convey than the sense of unhappiness is so much easier to convey than happiness. In misery, we seem aware of our own existence, even if it is in the form of a monstrous egoism. But the pain, this pain of mine, is individual. The nerve that belong, this nerve belongs only to me. But but happiness annihilates us. We lose our identity. And the second one is from my sister Genevieve, who uh, told me, "When God gives you lemons, make lemonade. And if God gives you melons, you're probably dyslexic." <laughs> she also she gave me a shirt that said I put the sexy in dyslexia <laughs> and uh, you might feel kind of bad for me because it'll seem like she has the drop on me with all the good jokes but uh, don't feel too bad she's blonde so uh, so well, let me connect the dots really quickly for you. So the connecting of the dots is, you know, like uh, Graham Greene is right. Pain and, and suffering is really kind of very difficult to deal with. But at the same time, there, there's joy to be found in many different things. And so uh, for me, uh, you know, if you're going to be a novelist, or you know, I can only give you one piece of advice, go find that intersection where, like, the things that, like, scare you and hurt you meet with the things that fascinate you and are, be and are beautiful. And for me, that uh, came to me uh, in special ed. The government gave it to me. It was really wonderful. Um, and so... Uh, in this world, uh, in this academy where all these people are learning to be spell right, uh, some people are disabled. And uh, one question you, always, uh, you often feel is like, so what part of this comes from your, your own life? And uh, riding the short bus to school every day for a bunch of years is a pretty wild experience uh, because, you know, you're first through third grade, you're all kind of crazy. But then every once in a while, uh, you get a kid who has a compulsion disorder. And that, it's like the most interesting week of your life. Uh, there was this one kid, I remember his name was MJ, uh, not his real name, uh, but he would always sit in the back and the right because above the wheel well, one of the brakes would squeak, and so every time it would stop, it would go squeak, and he must have had purchased pit perfect pitch because he would come right in, and as soon as it made that sound, he would go squeak, but he would continue it, so as soon as it stopped, he would go squeeze my pee-pee, right? And if you are two, that's the funniest thing ever. That's hilarious. But that, the problem with the compulsion disorder is patients that have this, uh, they can't really stop. Uh, they can't, uh, they're compelled to do it. So he would continue to, he was Tourette, uh, Tourette's, and he would tick during class, and it would scare the bejesus out of you as a kid, right? So this, this language, which was obscene, was also really kind of very terrifying and embarrassing. You were very embarrassed for him. And after about a week, he got pulled out to what's called a non public school, that's right. And that's where you go if you have a behavior disorder. Um, so uh, 
if you were if you were one of these disabled students, you were very scared. You, you knew you had fallen into special ed, and you were afraid you were going to fall even further. So one of the things I wanted to, to draw out of this, uh, the community in which our hero uh, lives in, the tower he lives in, is filled only with other cartographers. And I'm going to read you a very brief section about um, about what these what these students are like. Uh, and he's just been kind of, there's a murder and people are investigating him and he's just escaped an interrogation. And uh, uh, this is on, for those of you who have bought the book, uh, both of you will want to know that on page <laughs> 53, bottom of the page, uh, chapter seven. Uh, he's, he's just about to reach his, his room in the tower. The oldest among them was Simple John, who as far as anyone knew could say only three things. No, Simple John, and splattering splood. This last was John's favorite, which he used often when casting his mini soapy janitorial spells. Most people were terrified when they encountered John. He stood over seven feet tall and possessed large, meaty hands. His red nose was too bulbous, his brown eyes too beady, his horsey teeth too big. But anyone who looked past John's appearance could not help but love his gentle manner and lopsided smile. Deva Dorshear, Nicodemus's other calcographic roommate, was less, less well-loved. The Alkalites had named her Demon Scream Devon. When she was focusing, little separated Devon from a lesser wizard. However, when she would often stop spell writing halfway through a text to contemplate an open window, a creaking board, or a handsome wizard. This had gotten her into many unfortunate situations, none of which helped by her gift for screaming unlikely obscenities, a talent she effectively wielded against leaking inkwells, torn parchments, and the generally rude. Wizards were less impressed by, the, by her effusive obscenities, and so Devon had learned to curb her, mouth, her foul mouth when around superiors. This was how Nicodemus, as he climbed up the last few steps, knew that no one with authority was present in the common room. Ooh, you dirty son of a rat-eating butt-dog, Devon screamed. There followed a loud crash. Splattering splood, Simple John called, laughing heartily. Another crash, more obscenities. Nicodemus looked up to heaven and said, not since Los became the first demon has there been so much chaos as now exists on the other side of this door. Celeste, goddess, haven't I had enough tribulations for one night? Perhaps you could put them to sleep. I, I promise to clean up whatever they've done. Crash, laughter, crash. Drink goat piss, you slimy pigeon penis. <laughs> Nicodemus frowned at the door. Dev, do pigeons even have penises? <laughs> Simple John bellowed a battle cry of, Simple John! <laughs> Sighing, Nicodemus opened the door and stepped inside. Immediately, he jumped back to avoid a Jejunus curse that shot past him in a pink blur. Of the common magical languages, Jejunus was the weakest. So weak, in fact, that it was used only for teaching. It had a simple syntax and large pink runes that were identical to mundane letters. This meant that it was almost impossible to misspell and hence safe for cartographers. Perhaps more importantly, their soft, muddy texture made them safe to handle. The curse that had missed Nicodemus's nose by inches read, find John's left butt cheek and label with, I'm a gelatinous poop sucker. <laughs> Nicodemus groaned. Simple John, trumpeted Simple John, another crash. Peering into the room, Nicodemus saw a proud John holding up several sentences that read, erase Devon's spell. The big man had slipped his arms out of the slit sewn into the tops of his sleeves so as to better see the language forming in his giant muscles. All around, John laid overturned chairs and scattered pages. The big man forged another jejunus sentence in his bicep and slipped it down to his bald fist. Laughing uncontrollably, he cocked his massive arm and with an overhand throw cast find and hit Devon's right butt cheek. Almost faster than Nicodemus's eyes could follow, the gooey pink ball shot across the room. Devon dove behind an overturned table and John's curse, but John's curse flew over the barricade and dropped into a dive attack. Devon screened something, likely obscene, and popped up from behind the table. 
Like John, she had slipped her arms out of her sleeves. From her right hand extended an octopus-like spell, each tentacle of which read, Edit, Simple John's Incoming Spell. John's obscenity was caught in the tentacles and struggling like a minnow. Devin cackles as she began to edit the curse. As a boy, Nicodemus had loved Juna's cursing matches. He had hurled handfuls of dirty words at his classmates and relished in flicking obscenities into rivals' faces. He giggled uncontrollably when filthy language had splattered on another child's back. But, but that had been long ago before the wizards had moved him into the drum tower. So that's, uh, later on, he actually, Nicodemus is forced to actually teach a class and uh, the more you teach in this particular academy, the higher a chance you have of rising. And uh, he then, of course, has to teach a class to a bunch of cacographers. After I graduated from college, I became a special education teacher. So uh, if you do read the book, you'll you'll recognize uh, kind of the unique pain of being a teacher in a classroom where someone's where everything's falling apart. Um, <laughs> am I on time? Okay. You're fine. Go, okay. Go. Uh, so, can you read a watch? Yes. Um, <laughs> there are no letters on it. Uh, so uh, the majority of the book is actually not, there are actually, unfortunately, are obscenities and, and kind of the childish uh, fun. So I definitely wanted to get that in there and show the, you know, the, the childish nature that he had come out of. But much of the book is, is a murder mystery uh, that centers around uh, this, this one author uh, being... Um, bumped off by a misspell very early on in the book. And suspicion falls on Nicodemus, but also on his mentor, Shannon. Um, I became, and a lot of people, you know, say, Nicodemus is obviously you. And that's true, he was a, a younger version of me. But the person I identify most strongly with is Shannon, who is, uh, I find the most interesting character. He's older, he's a teacher. Uh, as a medical student, I became fascinated with the difference between sight and vision. Uh, you can see many things, but visually perceiving them is different. You see things actually with the back of your mind, and you visually perceive them with the front of your mind. Um, so there are many forms of blindness where you can see, so you could, you'll get out of the way of a ball thrown at you, but you won't know why you're moving. Um, so with Shannon, I wanted to imagine a disability. He has a particular type of blindness that allows him to see text, uh, but not... Uh, uh, in the mundane world. So if he were standing here, he could see the he could see all the text in the page, uh, but he couldn't see uh, you or I or any of these lights. Um, and we we hear it's because he maybe read a sacred text when he was younger and shouldn't supposed to. But we don't really know why he's he has this disability. Um, in this scene, he has gone to and broken into the library of the person who was murdered, and he finds a journal, and someone was bribing her right before she got murdered, and. Uh, uh, last bit of fact you need to know is that when he has a uh, familiar near him, his familiar is a parrot named Azure, he can see through her eyes. But right now, he's imagine you're in the aisle of a library and you have books on either side and you can see every single letter written in all those books, but you can't see the books. You know, everything's dark. And so he's just about, he's found out that this woman is being bribed, he's got a clue, he's about to start the investigation, and all of a sudden he realizes uh, he's not alone in the library, someone else is in the library. And uh, he's about to hear a voice, that's, and, and he's holding the journal, which has a um, sharply worded spell, a, a, a war text, something, a language you can use to hurt somebody, uh, written on the back of it. And he hears someone say, put the book down. And uh, you've all seen this. It's in James Bond when the bad guy says, you know, put the gun down, Bond, right? But it's different because it's not a gun. It's a book. So... <laughs> Shannon did not move. Noro's research journal was still in his hands. Lay the book down, the voice said, slowly. <laughs> Shannon bent over and obeyed, but just before dropping the codex, he let his hand slip, so he held only the back cover, and he set it on the floor. You are Nora's murderer. Nora was a woman's murder. 
he asked and straightened. The shrew killed herself before I had a chance, a grunt. It's a re reoccurring problem for me. I killed my master before he named the boy. I won't make the same mistake with you. Shannon tried to discern where the voice was coming from. Your master was the noble who paid to see the sleeping cacographer. There came another whistling inhalation and a short, dry laugh. So the old beast replenished the emerald when he, the boy was asleep? Yes, it was he who had the agreement with Magistrafin, one she chose not to renew with me for squeamish reasons. Shannon narrowed his eyes. The room's echo made it difficult to guess the murderer's location. Squeamish because you're not human? How could you tell? You inhale only before speaking, Shannon replied as calmly as he could. The rest of us find that difficult. The creature laughed. Full marks for acumen, Magister, but I am not human, nor was my master, though he could fool your kind into thinking so. The subtextualization of your prose is impressive. Which faction wrote you? The creature laughed louder. Perhaps I spoke too soon about your act acumen. I am no construct, nor do I care for your wizardly factions. You're a demon, then. Not a demon, either, and I don't have time for this. What matters now is your name. My guess is that you are Magister Agwu Shannon, master of the drum tower. If so, I have an offer for you. I am Magister Shannon, he replied slowly, and I'm afraid I might share Nora's squeamishness. I'd rather the boy lived, the voice croaked. The stronger he is, the more I gain from the emerald. I'm telling you this so you can understand how lucrative it would be to align yourself with me. Tell me the boy's name, and we might continue, as Nora Thin and the master did. Let me visit the boy when he's sleeping, as you put it, and I'll pay you twice Finn's wages. Refuse, and I will kill you now. What's more, I will cripple the boy or be forced to kill him outright. Shannon swallowed hard. He hadn't considered that Nicodemus's life, as well as his own, might end tonight. <coughs> you care for the boy, the voice observed wryly, more than I can say about the grammarian. She cared for what he was, not who. And what is he? Is he the one of the Erasmian prophecy? The murderer grunted, few things are more annoying than ignorance. Shannon laughed. And yet you are ignorant of the boy's name. I might not know his name, but I will kill every male cacographer in this academy to find him. I can wield dreams as you might wield a net. So unless you want every boy in the drum tower murdered, you'll accept my offer. Shannon glanced at Nora's research journal. The back cover lay open. The grammarian's sharply worded spell glowed on the exposed page. Do you need more incentive? The voice asked. There are rewards brighter than gold. With the Emerald Eye a master of language prime, I could tell you how the creator made humanity. There was a pause. You do know what language prime is, don't you? Shannon responded automatically. Language prime is blasphemy. A dry laugh. Magister, you lack conviction. What might you know about the original language? Interesting. I could teach you more. Shannon shook his head. Villain, you have no spell written, no attack ready. My stenesthetic reaction is very sensitive. I would, have felt you, I would have felt you forging. There came a shuffling noise. True. I haven't read, I haven't a text ready, nor can I spell write within Starhaven's walls. But, not, but it's not words I threaten you with. It's a half foot of sharpened iron I'll drive through your skull before you can extemporize two words. The murderer was right. Shannon couldn't dash off a spell in time. Enough banter, the creature hissed. You can accept my offer or force me to kill every boy in Shannon dove for the floor. Something whistled above his head and struck the wall behind him with a clang. He grabbed hold of the mag magna spell in Nora's book and pulled. The vortex leapt from the page in an effluence of silver runes. Shannon did not know the spell's name or how to wield it, so he blindly threw his arm toward the voice. The text uncoiled into a long, liquid lash that struck with serpentine quickness. The murderer cried out with surprise as the silvery text struck a bookshelf. The spell cut open several leather-bound codices and with, loud, with a loud ripping sound. With a blast of air, each severed spellbook exploded into a blazing nimbus of sentence fragments. 
Shannon flinched, the brilliance dazzling his text-sensitive eyes. Then the murderer was on top of him. The universe became a seething blackness of elbows and knees as they rolled over one another. A hand was trying to pull, up, pull the Magnus spell from Shannon's hand, and then a hard object cut a line of pain across his forehead. Yopping savagely, Shannon jerked his right hand free and whipped the Magnus spell around. It cut through something with a soft swish. Instantly, the weight lifted from Shannon's chest. The room filled with a high, keening scream. When Shannon sat up, a page of Golden Tech shot, shot towards him. He recognized the page as belonging to Nora's research journal the instant before it smashed into his nose. The murderer must have struck him with the book. Suddenly, he was on his back and struggling to get up. His head felt full of cotton and his ears were ringing. Deconstructing sentence fragments coated every inch of the private library's wall, floors and walls. The fragments were squirming, spinning, and leaping into the air. Beyond the chaos, Shannon, Shannon saw Nora's research journal flying into a patch of darkness that must have been a hallway. The inhuman screaming began to fade. Slowly, he realized what he was seeing. The murderer had taken Nora's journal and fled. All around Shannon, the deconstructing sentence fragments began to burst. Each, each small explosion flung phrases across the room. The sharp language cut into his mind and body with hot shards of pain. Desperately, Shannon felt around the floor for any clues for why the murderer had fled. His fingers found something long and partially surrounded by cloth. He picked up the strange object and ran, for the, ran from the library. Behind him, the decomposing sentences began to tear open the spell books. Soon they would sp spill their context into the glowing textual storm. Shannon pulled the subtextualized door shut, and the hallway went black. Shannon could hear the deconstructing literature crackle and hiss behind the, the subtext. But he was safe now. The chaotic language left in the private library would deconstruct into nothing. Something wet and hot was running down his face, blood. He was holding the mysterious cloth-covered object. Perhaps Azure could look at it for him. Azure! He t fear tore into his gut. What had the murderer done to his familiar? Azure, he called hoarsely. Azure! He turned and was running, blindly with, his, blindly with both arms stretched out. His hand struck a wall and he nearly fell. There came a faint whistling from behind. He spun around and with intense relief saw a coil of numinous censoring text lying on what he assumed to be a windowsill. The monster had bound the bird magically but not killed her. The villain must have known that hurting Azure would have made recruiting him impossible. Shannon hurried to pick up the censored bird. In her fear, Azure bit his pinky hard enough to draw blood, but Shannon wouldn't have cared if she had snapped his finger in two. Cooing softly, he unwound the censoring text from the bird's head. Once her mind was free, Azure cast to him a deluge of terrifying text, a white-cloaked clo white figure appearing in the hallway in a blazing numinous spell that came from outside the tower to envelop her mind. It seemed odd that the murderer had written a censoring text to strike from outside the tower. Then Shannon remembered the thing's claim that it could not spell right within Starhaven's walls. Los damn it, but what could the creature be? He hissed while scooping Azure up, as if she were a loaf of bread. In his left hand, still gripping the strange cloth-covered object he had picked up in the library. On trembling legs and looking through Azure's eyes, he hurried down the Gimhurst Tower, his breath coming ragged, his breath becoming ragged as he ran through Starhaven's uninhabited quarters. Twice mangy cats scattered before him, but he did not slow until flickering torches appeared along the walkway. Only, only then did he take time to look at himself through Azure's eyes. A deconstructing sentence fragment had torn holes into his robes and cut small bloody lines into his hands and face. More shocking was the gash that slanted down his left brow. Two of his silvery dreadlocks had been cut by whatever blade made that wound. After hurrying through several buildings and across the Grand Courtyard, Shannon reached the Erasmine Spire. Thankfully, there were no other wizards about to see him trot up the stairs and into his study. Still panting, he set Azure on the back of a chair and the strange, strange cloth-covered object on her writing desk. Though she was still frightened, though she still sent him sight and frightened memories of the attack, Azure was beginning to calm down. 
Shannon cast a few flamefly paragraphs above his desk. Once there was enough light, he coaxed Azure into standing on his shoulder. After saying a brief prayer to the creator, he turned Azure's eyes onto the strange object he had taken from Nora's library. At first, he couldn't understand what he was seeing. It lay on his desk, what appeared to be left of a white sleeve. He must have cut it off with a Magnus spell. Slowly, tentatively, he turned the thing over. It had been detached just above the elbow joint, but there was no blood. Its curled fingers were perfect, right down to the hairs growing on the back of the thumbs. Heaven defend us, Shannon whispered in shock. The days of prophecy. Patches of the object seemed to be made of pale skin, but even as he watched, these slowly darkened into clay. Save for this strange fact, the thing was an exact replica of the man's severed forearm. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. <laughs>